Welcome to The Rate Debate, a lively discussion from the champions of Australian fixed income, featuring Darren Langer and Chris Rands from Nico Asset Management. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of The Rate Debate. Yes, it's been 11 months already. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Darren Langer, Head of Australian Fixed Income at Nico Asset Management, and joining me as always, my co-portfolio manager, Chris Rands. Hello, everyone. So it's the first Tuesday of November, and that means the RBA has just met, and they certainly didn't disappoint. Uh, We've seen interest rates cut to a record low of 0.1%. They've also moved the three-year target to 0.1% and fixed the uh, bank term funding facility at 0.1%. So the big news is that they've actually also announced a QE program buying bonds of five to 10 years for about $100 billion, 80% of which will be government bonds and 20% of semi-bonds. So Chris, It's a pretty big program that they've announced. The RBA did actually sound quite upbeat in their statement, so it's a little bit perplexing that they they can say be upbeat in one breath and yet do what we could consider probably one of the biggest stimulus measures that they've ever introduced. What are your thoughts? Does this change um, our outlook for for the economy going forward and and what do you think they're thinking? It's a pretty big program. I think the QE that they announced of $100 billion over six months was larger than most people in the market would have expected. So that's obviously a big number. I don't think personally it, it changes my outlook for the economy too much, mostly because over the past few months, I think if, if people have been listening to the rate debate, they would have heard that we were kind of waiting and expecting the RBA very much to end up here anyway. So when I look at these policies, I kind of look at them from the perspective of this is what was needed. And if they hadn't have done it, it would have been probably more negative for the outlook than anything else. But when you look at what they've done, obviously it's going to pull down government bond yields. It'll help pull down mortgage rates. We should also see the Aussie dollar come off a little bit. And all of those things should really help growth, I guess, over the next six to 12 months. So it's a good thing that it has come now. But the way that you phrase that, I think, is probably the best way to look at it at the moment in that, you know, we kept asking, what is it that they're waiting for? If QE does work and the economy's in a tough place, why did they wait six months to unveil these policies? And it's probably worthwhile just pointing out two things that the RBA said over the past few months, which helped figure this out. So the first of those is that they think that these rate cuts and QE programs will have more effect now that the economy is reopening. So this comes straight from Governor Lowe. When the pandemic was at its worst and there were severe restrictions on activity, we judged that there was little to be gained from further monetary easing. But then he went on to say, as the economy opens up, it is reasonable to expect that further monetary easing would get more traction than was the case earlier. So the RBA is obviously very much still thinking QE works. They very much think that rate cuts are going to work and they just waited for the economy to open. The second thing that looks to be what has gotten them there is one of the arguments that we've talked about in the past is that you can't be the only central bank that doesn't do unconventional policy when everyone else does, because that's going to put upward pressure on your yield curve. It's going to put upward pressure on your currency, and that's going to slow down your growth. And so what we saw the RBA say was that while their balance sheet has increased considerably since March, larger increases have occurred in other countries. And so they've had to now consider the implications of what offshore is doing when they're making these decisions. So a lot of this kind of says the thing that they were waiting for was for the economy to reopen. And now that we've got it, it looks like hopefully it's going to be a big enough program to get growth going. How do you feel about the outlook from here? So yeah, Chris, definitely um, I think it's a, it's a good thing. It's probably a little bit later than we would have hoped, but maybe they have got their timing right waiting for the economy to reopen. I guess um, you know the, the unknowns to me are still sitting out there is that 
if we've seen Europe go back into a second lockdown again as they went into their winter, whether you know we'll see a vaccine or some kind of um, some sort of treatment for COVID uh, early next year before we head into our winter. So that that's probably one of the big unknowns in terms of how effective this is going to be. The, the other thing we haven't seen yet is whether the banks are actually going to pass on any of these cuts through to mortgage holders. That's really been one of the things driving house prices in particular at the moment. You know, we, we probably thought that they would have come off a little bit more than they have, but interest rates have been, you know, really effective for the housing market. So that one is still yet to be seen. So Chris, given we've seen rates now cut, you know, deposit rates will probably also come off for people on fixed incomes and people who rely on income to live off, what does this environment mean for them? Yeah. So, you know, I've spent a bit of time doing some research into just how fixed income performs in these periods. So when you think of these periods, I'm kind of describing zero rates or negative cash rates. And I guess the the one positive to take from this is that although interest rates are lower, typically fixed interest performs better than cash through these periods. So if you think about the economy, what's going on, you know, we've got large government deficits, which are going to need to be financed. We've got low inflation, high unemployment. And so what this means is that the cash rate's probably going to be pegged at zero for a number of years. The RBA actually said in its statement today that the board is not expecting to increase the cash rate for at least three years. When I did my research and I looked at other countries that have hit zero, you know, Japan, Germany, Switzerland, US, most of these countries have stayed at zero rates for uh, about seven to 10 years before they're even actually able to do anything. So if you look at the US perspective, for example, it took them seven years to increase the cash rate. And if Australia is in that same situation, then the cash rate could be zero for quite a long time. And so what that means is that fixed income will typically do better than that because you're going to have a higher yield. And so when most people, I guess, are going to be thinking, oh, the yield's too low, don't worry about it. Typically in these environments, it's actually the time you want to spend thinking about it because the cash rate could return you nothing or potentially negative sometime over the next 10 years, which is obviously what you don't want either. Yeah. And I guess the other thing to note is that in an environment where you have very, very low yields, other asset classes are unlikely to have significantly higher sort of returns than what they have historically. So you're unlikely to see double digit returns in, in other markets either. Um, and you'll probably find that uh, other returns start to, to become, you know, closer to the, the bond you return. But, but I think the most important thing to, to note out of all of this is that, you know, fixed income should still provide positive returns um, over the next few years, but you know, even if cash rates are zero or negative. So, Chris, one of the uh, one of the things that the RBA um, has been worried about, and, and it's quite a, a discussion within financial markets itself, is what QE really actually does. Um, a lot of people think it just inflates asset prices and doesn't flow through to the real economy, and certainly doesn't help with credit creation. For the RBA to actually now jump in and do it, they, they must feel that there's some other flow through to the real economy rather than just inflating asset prices. What do you think is going to happen in terms of financial stability from here or are we just going to see you know, a big boom and bust eventually? Yeah, so I, that's like a, an interesting way of, of looking at what is going on. My, my first comment to that would be if you read central banker, central bank's uh, research across the globe. Most of them say that quantitative easing works in increasing uh, economic growth. So while many kind of market participants seem to think that it doesn't, the central bankers at least think it's, 
it does. The other point, though, to make is on financial stability risk, and the RBA has very clearly shifted their thinking at the moment. So typically, when you look at financial stability risk, you know, you're worried about a hot economy, interest rates get too low, people start taking risks they shouldn't, and then bubbles get created that pop sometime in the future. But at the moment, what the RBA is saying is, is saying is that that's not our main concern. So this was a comment that Philip Lowe made uh, about two weeks ago. And what he said was that a second issue is the possible effect of monetary easing on financial stability and long-term macroeconomic stability. And so he says that they've paid close attention in the past and that they need to consider its effect when reducing interest rates. But then he says, to the extent that an easing of monetary policy helps people get jobs, it will help provide private sector balance sheets relief and lessen the number of problem loans. In so doing, it can reduce financial stability risks. So the RBA is essentially saying, look, we used to think that low interest rates would cause a bubble and that could be popped in the future. But what they're saying at the moment is that the true risk to financial stability is coming from interest rates not being low enough and that people can't repay their loans and that when they default, the balance sheets of the banks become impaired. And so what this means is for the RBA, there's a bit of a shift going on where rather than worrying about stoking house prices and equities, that they're really just worried about people defaulting. Now, that's probably going to be positive in the short term. You know, there's going to be cheap loans, there's going to be cheap debt, people are going to be able to get the money that they need. But what it means in the future is that debt levels will rise considerably in the economy. Now, when you look in Japan, when you look in Europe and and the US, low interest rates have brought with it higher and higher debt loads. And every time those central banks have gone to tighten financial conditions, they've found out that the economy can't handle it because it has too much debt. So, in the short term for the RBA, I think it's very correct to, to focus on those financial stability risks, but it does mean in the long term that there's a potential that we get stuck in a debt trap and that interest rates need to remain far lower for longer in order to allow those people that borrow to stay afloat through this period to fix up that, that borrowing. Yeah, it certainly seems to me to be a, a pretty big experiment. You know, anyone old enough like me to have remembered the 1990s recession we would have expected with this level of unemployment to have seen a significant fall in not only house prices, but probably other asset prices as well. And we haven't really seen that in this COVID crisis. I mean, we had the initial crash, but things have come come back quite strongly across all markets, um, including housing. And I think that that's probably the one thing that's perplexed me a little bit is sort of not seeing what happened in the 1990s replay here, even though we had many of the same kind of conditions. So maybe, maybe they have, um, you know, stumbled onto something that can help, at least in the short run. But as you say, the the dangers are trying to get out of it without adequate growth. Um, and we've talked about this before. The way economies generally get out of large debt burdens is to grow their way out of them. And with demographics being negative for growth over the long period of time, as well as, um, you know, technology and things like that necessarily being great for employment going forward. Um, you know, we're going to face a few challenges that we didn't face the last time we needed to get through such a big debt burden. Yeah, and it's probably interesting as well, I think, to flow on from that and think, you know, what is different now to the 90s? If you look at kind of negative interest rates, if you really step back and think about what is going on, basically the government is saying, I will pay you just not to get rid of that debt. So it does show just kind of how big some of these debt problems have become and just how rates need to keep dropping and dropping and to the point where they're going to give you money not to get rid of it. At some point in time, you would think it comes undone, but it just does show that the central banks have a huge amount of power to, to push these kind of debt 
and borrowings far further than you would expect. I guess, you know, it sort of uh, leads us on to, you know, one of the other really big questions for this week is the outcome of the US election. The RBA was really the entree for, for the week. Um, that's probably the, the main course. What are your thoughts in terms of what the election is going to mean for markets? It's obviously tough, I guess, to call it too aggressively when when you're you're a couple of hours before it occurring. Um, but I, I personally think that the biggest kind of mover for markets is one of the the two parties coming out with a majority in the Senate and the House. If either the Democrats or the Republicans could achieve that, and when you look at the polling, it's probably more likely that the Democrats are the ones that could do it. That would be, I think, the biggest mover for markets, in my opinion, because that would mean that the spending bills and, and all the policies that they would like to use would be more likely to come through. If we have, you know, the two separate parties in each of the Senate and the House, then that I think is when you're going to see more arguing over where the spending goes. And and I think at the moment, you know, if you look at the market getting excited for the spending bill to come before the election, it really got held up on on the two different parties arguing about it. So my first feeling is that you want to see a majority in both houses for it to be a big outcome. Otherwise, we, we risk a bit of a malaise of, of things moving sideways. The other area that I think could be relatively important is if the Democrats win, just what that means for the COVID outcomes. So obviously, you know, Trump has been, I guess, reluctant to lock down the the economies and and take measures to to stop COVID's flow. And, you know, he's also, I guess, laughed at Biden in certain circumstances for wearing a mask. And so obviously, if the Democrats win, perhaps they could get control of those COVID outcomes faster. So if we think about this occurring from an Australian perspective, from tourism, travel, and all those types of things, you know, that's obviously something that we would like to see that, you know, the US can get control of the situation so that we can move past it next year, rather than talking about, you know, 100,000 cases potentially becoming 200,000. What do you think would be the biggest mover? It's hard to hard to know in terms of market effect. I think in terms of the economy, a win for Biden is probably better for the global economy. He's probably more free trade orientated and less antagonistic to um, other countries. Mind you, their, their policies on China are not terribly uh, different. So things may not improve on that front terribly much. But I think realistically, the one thing we would see with Biden is it probably helps the world economy in general and the US becomes more of the, I guess, supporting economy that it's been for the globe in the last 20 or 30 years. Obviously, a win for Trump will probably go back to a much more antagonistic uh, global outlook, but may end up being a little bit better for the for the domestic economy uh, in the US. Difficult to know exactly what what happens, um, given that there's no more elections uh, that you know, he can win after that. But yeah, I, I would say that that's really my main take: is that one, Biden's probably better for the globe, and two, the, you know, Trump's probably better for the the US domestic situation. Yeah, I think as well, just to flow on from that certainly you know trump being antagonistic to china hasn't helped us and over the past few weeks we've seen more and more tariffs being or trade restrictions slapped on australia today there was news about potentially wheat and you've seen sugar copper all sorts of different things so perhaps if that relationship between the us and china can improve we can potentially get out of the way of these trade war scenarios as well most definitely it's certainly something to keep an eye on but something that won't you know be immediately obvious until you know in, into 2021 when the either regime really uh, takes control again so chris given the 
uncertainty around the US election, um, the fact that we are starting to see a, a second wave in Europe, and not to mention the ongoing virus problem in the US, which certainly hasn't gotten any better, it's probably unlikely borders anywhere are going to open real soon. I, I know we have the ability maybe to open up to some of more our more regional cousins in the Pacific area, but it's highly unlikely we're going to open up to, to Europe or to the US anytime soon. E- even if a vaccination is introduced, there's going to be problems around getting it out to enough people, at least initially, and then also getting people to take it. And we still don't know whether it's going to be any more effective than the current flu viruses, um, which you know is probably also going to make things difficult. You know, with all this uncertainty, where do you think um, the next six months take us? And you know, what do we what do we got to look forward to? When I look at that, I think you know those types of comments really play into why it was important for the RBA to do what it has done. Um, so, you know, prior to this month, we we hadn't seen COVID cases really spike the way they have in Europe. At at one stage, I, I think I saw the the rolling average uh, seven day COVID cases in France and Germany over fifty thousand per day. When you think to Melbourne going into lockdown, I think Australia had about eight hundred cases a day. So obviously they're on clearly different levels. So for the RBA, at least, that Governor Lowe actually said that he expects the recovery to be uneven. That unevenness, I think, is low rates are going to serve some sectors well. You know, the domestic economy that is doing strongly through this will will probably pick up even stronger with lower rates. But if you've got a business that's related to tourism or travel or, you know, restaurants and those types of things, there is the risk that tourism doesn't open within the next six months and, you know, you're left without JobKeeper, which is expected to unwind over the next six months. And you're going to be facing operating costs that you probably can't afford. And so the RBA actually put research out last month and they said of the businesses in these sectors, 10 to 15% of them would close tomorrow if they didn't have government support. So it is still a dicey proposition with with some of these outlooks that, you know, if tourism doesn't come back fast enough, there's probably going to be a, a wave of business closures in that sector. And that feeds into why it's so important that the RBA, I think, provides as much support as they can. The other thing with that, though, is just what you mentioned about with the vaccine. You know, obviously, the market is pretty positive on getting one, on it being effective. But in the instance that, you know, either it doesn't eventuate or it's not quite as effective as the market expects, then, you know, who knows what we could be looking at from this virus over the next, you know, 18 to 24 months. And and that really just feeds into, I think, the uncertainty. And I'm certainly no doctor and, you know, I just read the headlines and and the articles like everyone else to try and figure this out. It's very hard to tell if and when those vaccines are going to be coming. And I think until they do, we're going to need to see the RBA giving support, particularly in the bond market, to make sure that the government can keep financing, you know, these huge deficits that they have. And that will make sure that, you know, these spending programs like JobKeeper, like the new the new tax cuts, which are designed to get businesses spending like they can be funded to make sure that growth can come back. Yeah, I think that's the really important thing with all of this, you know, with the government initially supporting through JobKeeper programs, um, we saw a really big uptick in uh, disposable income, which is not also usual in, in heading into a recession. The RBA is obviously primed to try and pick up domestic employment. So as long as they can keep those two things happening, we can probably replace 
quite a bit of the external sector that we've lost maybe not permanently but certainly for some years um, with domestic with domestic growth and that seems to be the the main path so far you have to say that they're doing the right things in that respect but the the big challenge is whether businesses domestically take up the challenge and whether you know it, it all comes through nicely or, or as um, you know the RBA alluded to that we end up with a few bumps along the way, but but that seems to be the only outcome at, at the moment I can see. As long as you know COVID is hanging around the world, and you know it would be very very difficult to reopen borders, um, even if you can open up your dis- domestic economy. So just to sum up, it's been a really big day in terms of monetary policy. Um, we've seen the RBA cut interest rates to a historic low of zero point one percent. And we've seen the first real announcement of quantitative easing in the Australian market. It's unlikely that uh, there'll be too much more on monetary policy uh, over the next few months um, while we uh, take in how these things are happening, but we'll continue to update our listeners with what we're seeing in the economy. So just a reminder to reach out to us if you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on air. To get in touch, you can email us at theratedebate at nickoam.com. And for our latest insights or to subscribe to our insights email, visit our website at nickoam.com.au. So tune in next month when we deliver our latest thoughts on the RBA's rate decision and provide an update on what's happening in markets. Until then, stay safe. This podcast was prepared by Nico AM Limited, ABN 9900337625256352, AFSL number 237563. It is of a general nature only and does not constitute personal advice or an offer of any financial product. It does not take into account the objectives financial situation or needs of any individual. Any references to particular securities or sectors are for illustrative purposes only and this is not a recommendation. Any economic or market forecasts are not guaranteed.